Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Rogue Preparedness Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I truly appreciate you. And just like how I start every other podcast, I would like to invite you to come and visit me on social media. Um, come and find me on my website. You know, I have newsletters, a Patreon. Just search Rogue Preparedness, and I'll just pop right up everywhere. Um, you know, ask me any questions or just uh, join me on our journey through preparedness and helping people and all that. And so... Um, Anyway, uh, I'm going to dive right into today's topic because I think we have a lot to talk about. And um, interestingly enough, today I posted um, on Instagram, I posted the top excuses for lack of disaster preparedness. This was a survey done in 2015 by Chapman University. And I, I only saw the picture. I do not know how many people were surveyed, but um, it was the top excuses for the lack of disaster preparedness. So 28% said, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. 33% said, I don't want to think about it. 40% said, I just don't have the time. And 51% of people said, emergency services will help me. That's astonishing that 51% of the people surveyed in, in this survey, whether it was, you know, 10 people, 100, 1,000, whatever, 51% of those people said that somebody else is going to come and help them. It's astonishing. Um, and, you know, we there are plenty of resources out there, the government services, you know. However, you know, you may see all these fire stations, the police stations, you know, the, the, you know, FEMA and your local, you know, emergency disaster um, government agencies and things. However, um, the actual amount of people available in those agencies, the police departments, fire departments are very small comparatively to the amount of people that there are in each community. So today we're going to be talking about, um, we're going to be getting some insight here from, from our guests, which I'll introduce in just a minute, insight into uh, the government agencies and emergency preparedness, and also talking, you know, about why it's really important that we take some strain off of the system. While there are emergency services there to help us, we also need to be prepared to take strain off the system. So uh, let's uh, introduce our guest. This is TJ. Thank you so much for, for being on. Hi, thank you, Morgan. I'm real happy to be here, excited to talk about this stuff. Uh, so my name is TJ. I live in the Oklahoma metro area, and I work in uh, local government as an emergency manager for one of the uh, one of the cities right around Oklahoma City. Um, I've been in that role for a few years now. Uh, been very kind of integrated into the uh, government role in emergency management at the local level around here. We deal a lot with our state partners, our private partners, uh, even at the federal level sometimes. So yeah, I'm real, real excited to be here and, and dive into this. Tell me a little bit about um, kind of what you do and how like in emergency and disaster situations on your local level, kind of what would be some sort of response type of scenario that, you know, you can kind of help walk us through that, help us understand kind of the back end of it. <clears throat> okay. So essentially uh, when you're talking about the, especially at the local level, a lot of what I think about are the kind of lights and sirens 
when you have an emergency, you know, fires, uh, you know, things like that. Police and firefighters are essentially what most people think of, which is, of course, an essential resource for us to have. But in emergency management, what we focus on is kind of the entire disaster cycle. So uh, a lot of what we do uh, is we manage the coordination of government resources. So if there's a big emergency, what we do in emergency management is we'll set up a command center and uh, we will manage where all of our resources are. We will help coordinate an organized effort to deal with those emergencies. So we're not necessarily the people that are the boots on the ground out there responding to emergencies. We're kind of the people behind the curtain who are helping direct other services to where they need to respond to these emergencies. So would you be would you be the type of would you be the person that calls on like CERT uh, or uh, you know the Red Cross like are you who exactly are you like kind of organizing? Yeah, so uh, CERT is definitely a big part of it. Uh, Red Cross, we have some really good partners in Red Cross, and we deal with them on a regular basis. So uh, part of the challenge with the coordination is when you have government entities that are also trying to coordinate things with private entities. Um, they have all kinds of different organizational uh, uh, ways of how they deal with things. So for them to be able to work together is sometimes a real challenge. So that's kind of where we come in and we get uh, get past those organizational hurdles. So we're not duplicating efforts or wasting resources uh, as much as possible. And we try and provide an efficient response. So essentially um we are there for coordination to make sure that the responders have all the resources that they need now when we're not dealing with an immediate emergency a lot of what we do is kind of writing the plans and uh doing mitigation work to make sure that if a disaster happens our communities are well prepared for that so it's uh it's a lot of paperwork and we don't get all the uh guts and glory kind of like the police and firefighters do but it's really important work uh, when it comes to to major emergencies. So you have all these plans in place and um, when an emergency, let's say an emergency is about to happen, you know, you see it on the horizon, how long, I guess kind of walk us through a little bit of the process b between like a, about like an average time, I guess it would take for you to be like, okay, this is an emergency in this area. We need to, you know, mobilize these people, you know, and do this and take this action plan and do this. I mean, like, um, you, do you guys like run drills? Like, how do you like manage this? So, yeah, it, and it varies quite a bit depending on what organization you're working for. I'm actually very fortunate to work for an organiza organization where we have multiple people in our emergency management department, which is actually fairly rare, at least in my state. Uh, you know, you have uh, county departments and city departments that are run by one person. So that puts a real strain on on resources naturally. Um, so one of the things we do, and this is a requirement for some of our federal grant money, is essentially what we do is we are in a coordination role. Um, so we help uh, overcome hurdles in communication and coordination between government and private uh, entities a lot, a lot of what we do is writing those plans, but our funding through the federal government is very dependent on updating those plans and exercising and drilling those plans. So in a calendar year, 
if we want to get our federal grant money, we're required to perform a certain number of exercises and drills that practice those plans. Additionally, we are required to produce updates for our emergency plans. So we don't write these plans and they sit there for 10 years collecting dust. We're in a constant process of updating those plans on a given schedule. Awesome. So I, I would assume that um, this would also be a good idea for the average person to have their own plans and to have their own mock drills and things like that, right? Yeah, so one of the big things that we push, especially on the local level, is that we want, want individual citizens to take their preparedness for emergencies into their own hands. Um, you know, there's always going to be police and firefighters and emergency responders that are out there to help people. But, you know, even even in a larger city like I work in, you know, there's a limit to what we're able to do on a given time frame. So they're going to come to help you, but you might be stuck where you're at for a while. So one of the big things that FEMA pushes is this uh, have a kit, make a plan, stay informed deal. And, and, you know, that's what we do on a professional level. But if we could get every citizen in the country to do those three things, you know, build a, an emergency kit, have a plan of how they're going to use it and stay informed about the emergencies that might be around them, we'd be in a much better position overall to deal with these emergencies. And, you know, one of the big things that we do year round is we do a lot of mitigation work to help uh, protect people in the event that an emergency happens. And one of the big things that we struggle with in, in our government role is that mitigation for disasters is much, much, much more cost and time effective than response to disasters. So if you invest $100 and you know 10 minutes in trying to mitigate the impacts of these disasters when they happen, that's worth much, much, much more than trying to invest that money in responding once it's already happened. Yeah, absolutely. And what's really interesting about what you said is that FEMA and the local governments, you know, state governments, every emergency response and management government agency, whoever you're talking to, they all recommend having a kit. Every single website, every single, um, you know, advertisement, whatever, they all, they're always telling people, get a kit, do this, do this, do that. But I think what really throws people is the fact that when an emergency or disaster happens, a response comes, which is should happen, but a response comes. And so they're like, well, they're responding to this disaster anyway. Why do I have to be prepared for this when somebody else is responding to this and they're going to come and help me? But the government agency that's responding to this is also telling you, look, you need to be prepared yourself too, because as you just said, TJ, we cannot well, we may be able to help you. It's going to be a while, most likely. You know, who knows when it's going to be. Um, you know, and if history has taught us anything with emergencies, with natural disasters specifically, you know, the real big ones, Katrina, it takes a long time. And then it's not just, uh, you know, the recovery immediately after. It's the years-long, you know, recovery afterwards that that's going to be a real kicker. Um, even FEMA's recovery resources are stretched thin. Um, I'm actually reading an, an article from 2017. However, I've seen articles as uh, late as soon, uh, I'm sorry, as 
recent as um, just like a couple days ago saying that FEMA is spending, you know, millions and billions of dollars on recovery and it's really hurting the economy. And so FEMA's recovery resources resources are stretched thin. This is uh, what this article is saying. FEMA has 6,000 permanent staff and 9,000 disaster reservists. Think about that for a minute. FEMA, a national government agency, has six only 6,000 staff and then 9,000 disaster recovery reservists. You think that these 9,000 people and then these 6,000 permanent people are able to help these potentially, you know, thousands upon thousands or pos- potentially millions of people who could be uh, paralyzed by this natural disaster. So yeah, I mean, they're, they're calling in other emergency agencies and things. But that's just FEMA. And then you have to talk about just the Red Cross and just this. I mean, there's there's a there's minimal people in these disaster. Rel- and there are actually a lot of disaster relief efforts, but it's just it's just still such minimal people compared to how many people are you know affected by these natural disasters. Yeah. So and that's a struggle kind of no matter where you're at. And what you have to keep in mind, too, is that just because you have a a large disaster like a Katrina or like what they're dealing with in Australia with their fires, you know, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden all of the day to day emergencies are going to stop. You're still going to have to have emergency responders available to deal with your house fires, your burglaries, your, um, you know, assaults. Uh, that stuff doesn't come to a halt just because you're in the middle of a major disaster. Uh, So when you're talking about putting a strain on your emergency services, um, you know, you're dedicating a lot of resources to that disaster, but you're still having to perform your day-to-day operations, which uh, even for a lot of smaller departments, even maintaining day-to-day operations is sometimes a stretch. You know, you have a lot of rural departments and, so many of these fire departments, especially or volunteer departments, um, you know, they're they're giving their time away for free to keep their communities safe, uh, which is a wonderful thing. But when you're completely dependent on these folks to come and rescue you when stuff gets bad, uh, you know, that that is a resource that's going to be overwhelmed very quickly. So we encourage everyone, you know, to to look at a realistic, uh, you know, disaster kit. And it's not always stuff that people think about right away, but it's things like, you know, insurance documents, uh, you know, things like that. People tend to forget how important it is to have all of this information available after a disaster. You know, in 2008, uh, my family, we had a house fire and, you know, you're sitting there in a in a hotel room trying to think of everything that you've lost and do an itemized list of everything that got damaged or destroyed. You know, there's an information aspect to it as well that I think people often forget about. Yeah, I think a lot of people focus on like apocalyptic. I'm never going to need those important documents. And so I think mm-hmm. they, I think that's really why it kind of <laughs> blindsides them when some, you know, some sort of emergency or, or disaster happens and they're just like, oh, I don't have any of this stuff. And so, you know, <clears throat> I think a, I think 
you know, apocalyptic is real fun to talk about, but I think, you know, with the more that's happening in this world, you know, all the natural disasters that keep hammering us every year and just everyday emergencies, you know, getting a car accident, do you have your car insurance? You know, I mean, just real basic things people just don't, they just don't think about. And, um, let me ask you a question. Um, it, you know, when you're when you're talking about the volunteers and, you know, you're talking about uh, just anybody involved in relief efforts, we have to also understand that they're people, you know, they have families and they have people they want to protect as well. So uh, and also, you know, I, I've been taught in a lot of my emergency disaster training, you know, if something isn't safe for you to get to them, you know, you have to think about your own safety as well, because like if you're putting yourself in a very dangerous situation trying to get to this person, you know, in the sense of, you know, if your life is going to be in danger as well, you know, like if you cannot effectively help them, then, you know, you're not helping them, basically, <laughs> you know, you, you have to make sure that your safety is taken in mind as well. And so um, I guess kind of what I'm getting at is, these all these people have lives and they have you know they don't they want to you know keep move, living and they want to protect their family and all these things so what is what's kind of like a, a threshold I mean have you ever seen um, I, guess, I guess kind of what I'm asking is what's a threshold for emergency volunteers and disaster response in which they're just like okay, this is, this is too much, you know, we have to, you know, take our own safety into consideration as well, you know, you know, let's stop, or is there a threshold like that? Sure, that so that's, yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and that's definitely something that we look at, um, you know, one of the biggest things that we learn in, in the professional capacity of responding to disasters is that if you yourself become a victim, uh, you're not helping anyone and you're straining resources even further. So the first thing that we look at is the safety of our responders. You know, that's that's priority one. Yes, we are there to help people, but it does not help anyone if our responders are out there getting hurt, if they're getting, uh, you know, run down with fatigue. So there are things in place to make sure that, uh, you know, when we have people out there, and they're integrated into our response system, uh, that they are not exposing themselves unnecessarily to danger. And, you know, when, when you talk about these responses, you're talking about a, an environment that's naturally dangerous, and you can never reduce that completely. But uh, let me give you an example. One of, the, one of the ways we respond to these disasters is through a system called the Incident Command System. And it's basically uh, a response uh, organizational structure that is kind of put uh, pushed by FEMA. It, it originated in the fire service. So um, when I say it's an organizational structure, it's not this strictly academic thing that has no real world application, but it was basically adapted from wildland firefighters. So this, this is used and it is functional. And one of the roles within that structure uh, that is very high up uh, is a safety officer. So you have your incident commander that is in charge of uh, essentially the entire response effort. Uh, but you also have a safety officer who is in charge of making sure that the safety of everyone within that command system is taken care of. And that 
includes things. Uh, let me give you an example. Like when you have a large wildfire, if you're calling in resources from across the state, you have to consider, you know, how long did it take these firefighters from this community on the other side of the state to actually get their equipment and drive down here? Was it a 10 hour drive for them? Because if they've just driven 10 hours, you can't deploy them for another operational period, which is generally 12 hours. And, you know, by the end of that, they would have you know, essentially have worked, you know, 22 hours. You just can't do that because you're putting them in a position where the fatigue is is a hazard in and of itself. So, um, yeah, the, the safety of our responders is kind of a paramount concern to us. And, uh, you know, we, we build that in our structures. And it's not going to be 100% the same depending on where you go, but it is built in the system to be a concern. And, you know, with, with first responders, like a lot of us, when people are in need, they're going to push themselves probably beyond what is safe for them to push themselves because we, we're out there, we want to help people. Um, but it all comes back to that principle. If, if they become a victim of the incident, they're not helping anyone and they're putting further strain on our resources. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so something else um, that I'm kind of thinking of, you're talking about, um, you know, bringing resources in from other states potentially or other you know cities or whatever. Um, what about when people have to be taken out of the city because, you know, it's such a bad situation. So like, you know, medical concerns or their houses are being destroyed or whatever, like, um, you know, people aren't just, it's usually not, not all the time, but sometimes a disaster is so bad that people are fleeing the actual area to go into those neighboring cities and states. So now they are having a strain on that system because of the influx of people that are going to those neighboring cities, states, whatever, right? Do you have any um, coordination with that sort of stuff? Or is it really just kind of focused on kind of relieving the efforts of, of your general area. So there there's essentially a disaster cycle that we use. Um, and it goes, essentially you start with, uh, you can think of it in kind of a temporal way. So you start with like mitigation planning, the things that you're doing in between when a disaster strikes. Uh, and then you go into your response phase and that's essentially when a disaster strikes, those are your immediate life safety concerns uh and then the final phase is recovery so what you're talking about essentially falls under the recovery phase when you have to deal with the people who you've had to evacuate and you know you're talking on a large scale and and one of the things i think people think about is you know oh that's never going to happen to me but as an example you know a lot of these cities, they have water treatment plants. And you know what they have in water treatment plants is chlorine. So if you had an incident where you had a large chlorine leak and it affected neighborhoods, you know, where are you going to relocate those people? So this is another area where we encourage people on an individual level to have a plan of where they would go uh, during these emergencies. Uh, alternatively, we coordinate a lot of that aspect of it with available resources because a lot of these volunteer organizations, they, they're great to work with, but naturally they're not the organizations that can put boots on the ground to immediately respond to disasters because they don't necessarily have the training or equipment to do so. 
So a lot of where their role falls in is the recovery stage. So once people have survived the disaster, if they've had to relocate, we're going to coordinate with all those private sector and nonprofit organizations to get them the resources that they need. There are also some uh, government resources uh, like grants through FEMA where if you've suffered a catastrophic loss, you know, there there are channels that you can go through to try and get some kind of financial relief through that. But again, it comes back to the time frame issue. You know, how long is it going to take you uh, being the federal government to go through that process? And, you know, I've worked a lot, you know, with state and federal government and they're they're great people. They all you know, they're they're very well-meaning and good intentioned people. But sometimes government responses uh, require a lot of red tape, uh, whereas, you know, private sector nonprofits, they're able to cut through a lot of that and get resources fielded much faster. Uh, you brought up a, a really good point there of, again, time, you know, um, how long does it take for the recovery, not just a response time, but then the recovery time. And like you said, with the grants, I mean, these things do take a long time. I was hearing some people were still a year out, you know, from bad natural disasters, still a year out, haven't gotten anything from FEMA, you know, and so um, it you can't like, it's fine if you want to take that channel. There's nothing wrong with, you know, taking the grants and getting that, that additional help and whatever. But what are you going to do in the meantime? You have that whole year of still trying to live and survive. Um, and so I think, you know, financial preparedness is going to be a really, really big thing there. And overall, just having that own individual plan in place as well for your family you know what are you going to do where are you going to go how are you going to live where are you going to stay what kind of jobs are there if you have to relocate for a little while you know what um what are you going to do i mean really how are you going to survive and um yeah that's a yeah mm -hmm. yeah so and that's that's a great point and and touching on that a little bit you know on a more academic side uh, you know uh, my graduate degree is in fire and emergency preparedness administration. So um, one of the things that we talk about frequently in there is that, you know, insurance is essentially the greatest mitigation tool ever devised. And you've got to keep in mind, you know, insurance, where did it come from? It came from farmers who were insuring their crops way back in the day. They would pool their money. So if someone had, you know, a bad harvest, you know, they wouldn't be at a complete financial loss. So you're reducing and spreading that risk amongst a lot of people. But, you know, and this is one thing that people, I think, in the disaster preparedness community don't necessarily touch on a lot, is that, you need to check your insurance, make sure you understand what you're covered for. And I know that, you know, when you talk about insurance, people's eyes are going to glaze over. It's not a really exciting topic to talk about and no one wants to do it. But I, I'm telling you, and, and this was a huge deal for us when we had our house fire. You know, you, you have to understand what you're financially liable for and what your coverage is. And you have people all the time who... Uh, just as an example, over the past several years in, in Oklahoma, you know, we've dealt with earthquakes, which was not something traditionally that we have dealt with as a hazard. So it became this whole thing of how the insurance industry is adapting to that and what they're actually going to cover on houses that are damaged by uh, earthquakes. And, you know, you think about the financial impact that these events can have 
you know, it's not strictly on an individual level, but if you look at the town of Cushing in Oklahoma, for example, that had uh, a severe earthquake several years ago, that entire community, their their resources have been greatly, greatly impacted um, by by that series of earthquakes. So this is the kind of a, a thing that we're talking about that can essentially, you know, crumble the economy of smaller towns. So you have to consider the possibility that, you know, after an event like that, you may as much as you want to, you may not be able to remain viably in the same area that you have. And it may require you to relocate and where are the resources going to come from that. So if you make sure that your insurance coverage is good, um, you know, take take one day where you dedicate some time to really dive into your insurance stuff. And I know it's a drag. No one wants to do it. But if, if you do that, you're going to be much, much better off on the mitigation end. It's so funny talking about insurance because uh, my eyes definitely glaze over. And that's definitely uh, <laughs> my husband's uh, department there. And, you know, I... I hate paying for insurance. I'm like, man, I got to pay all this money for this insurance. Mm -hmm. But when you need it, man, oh, you're so happy to have it. And that's exactly how preparedness is as well. Preparedness is insurance as well. It's insurance towards, yeah, you're investing all this time and money into these preps and into, you know, your financial preparedness by saving money or whatever. You know, you're investing in this food and water. You're investing time into making these plans and, you know, doing these mock drills and all these things. And it seems worthless while you're doing it, right? You're like, man, I'm just collecting all this stuff. I'm never going to use this stuff. But then when it happens, you're like, oh my gosh, thank you. I'm so glad I had this. And I many times have said this to myself. I'm so glad we had this stuff. You know, I, I've never doubted my preparedness, you know, or whatever. I've never doubted preparing. But, you know, I know a lot of people have. I've had it constantly a constant comment on my uh, YouTube, nothing's ever going to happen. I actually just had a comment. I did a video like a year ago and they were like, oh, well, it's been 11 months and still nothing happened. And I'm like, really? <laughs> like, where do you live? First of all, second of all, what are you right, talking yeah. about? Anyways. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I, w I want to live. I want to live wherever they live, because let me tell you, in Oklahoma, we we get it. Uh, we get it pretty bad here, especially, you know, like I was saying with the earthquakes being a uh, concern over the last several years, you know, we have wildfires, tornadoes, earthquakes. Now we, we get a lot of it here. And, you know, if, believe me, if we could have like uh, 11 months without anything like that happening, we'd be in real good shape, but that's not going to happen. And, you know, the, the truth of it is, you know, I, I hope that with all of the preparedness that I've done, you know, I hope I never have to use that stuff really. You know, it's, it's a hobby that I enjoy doing for one thing. So you have to look at it from that perspective too. You know, is it something you enjoy doing? Don't let someone discourage you from, from doing something that you enjoy doing. But additionally, you know, I, I like having that peace of mind, you know, I wake up every day, you know, thinking, okay, I have this stuff ready. If today something happens, you know, something crazy and unexpected, you know, I know I'm at least going to be okay 
on these fronts, you know, uh, and that takes a lot of strain off of you. You know, we've been in situations here where, you know, we've been without power for several days and even something like that, you know, you think about preparedness, you know, we, like you were saying earlier, we often plan for the big events, you know, zombie apocalypse kind of stuff, (laughs) because that's kind of fun to talk about. But more often than not, what you're talking about is, you know, you're without power for a few days or, you know, something like if, if you're in the middle of an ice storm, what happens if your car gets off the road and you're stuck for, you know, several hours in below freezing temperatures, you know, you're in a situation where first responders can't necessarily get to you right away. So you're, you're always battling against time on these things. And, you know, the, the peace of mind that I get from knowing that, you know, whatever degree of preparedness I have, that's worth so, so much to me. I get anxiety real bad about certain things, and that's certainly one of them. If I'm not, you know, prepared, at least on a minimum level for for certain events, yeah, it stresses me out. So it's really funny because I, I definitely get anxiety, too, about, you know, not having certain preps and, like, not, not being as prepared as I really want to be about in certain things. Like, um, and... It's it's interesting, you know, because I I never really used to be like this. Like w- when I had my first power outage here in uh, when when I moved to Texas, um, it I was really concerned, you know, because I'm like, oh my gosh, I have nothing. You know, my phone's about to die. You know, um, the whole neighborhood is out. What do I do? I mean, literally, those things went through my mind, and I started realizing I just have nothing. I'm not prepared. You know, um, what if this were to last a lot longer? And in fact, that that is the exact mindset of most people. So with the PG&E blackouts specifically, I saw a specific article of this woman who was detailing kind of the days of the PG&E blackouts. At the first, she was like, she was kind of making jokes about it, like, oh, my lights went out. What am I going to do? I, I just, just, I'll get some, grab my ice cream and eat by candlelight. Ah, you know, romantic, right? And then, you know, she went to work the next day and she was still like, you know, oh, just going to, you know, lights are still out. I guess I'll just go home and, you know, do this or whatever. Day after that, she was pissed. She was like, <laughs> the lights are still out. What's going on? My stuff in my fridge is going bad. I, what am I supposed to do? This, that, and the other. You know, the store shelves are, you know, down. You know, uh, the resources are, you know, slim. The gas is, uh, you know, I can't get to work now because, you know, the pumps aren't working. This, that, and the other. I mean, and this was a really common thing. People love to go through those stages of the, you know, of the denial. <laughs> the, not, the, the denial anger and then acceptance except acceptance never really comes with people who are, are unprepared <laughs> right right yeah, yeah that's absolutely true and and it's frustrating too being on the um on the other end of that working in the government um you know we've had we've had instances where you know people wait until a disaster is essentially at your doorstep before they're reaching out for information resources on being prepared so just a you know we as another example we have a storm shelter registry in the city where i work where people call in they give us their information and we know where their storm shelters are so if if a tornado comes through their house is wrecked and they're essentially stuck in their storm shelter 
we know where to go to try and dig them out. You know, pretty simple, pretty simple process. A lot of cities have it. And I would encourage everyone, you know, especially if you're in a tornado prone area to see if that's something that your city does, because it is it is a valuable thing and it can help you get out of a situation where you're stuck uh, much faster. But it, it always comes in cycles if you're on the government end of it where people will wait until, you know, a day where you have severe weather. Then you get an influx of calls of people all of a sudden wanting to, you know, get prepared the day of. And, and the truth of it is, you know, if we're sitting in our office watching severe weather day, a, a severe weather day where there might be a tornado, we might not necessarily have time to deal with that stuff. You know, once once stuff starts to really happen we get inundated with our work very quickly and and again we're going into that phase of where we're possibly looking at having to respond and not mitigate and prepare for it so the attitude kind of changes very much depending on what phase of the disaster you're in right i mean the time to prepare is not when a disaster is at your doorstep basically and uh yeah that's that's it's it's crazy. It's kind of a crazy thought process of people because we know that these emergencies and disasters happen regularly. Like if you live in a place like Oklahoma that gets, I hear about tornadoes just constantly in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, if you live in a place like that, you know that these things happen. But it's kind of like people, again, they deny it. It's like, okay, that tornado happened. It's done right another tornado's never going to happen again <laughs> mm -hmm. right i mean that's yeah. kind of the the thought process of people well that's done phew i can go on about my right. life now they don't really think well gosh darn what if this happens again you know mm -hmm. i was totally unprepared this time i should get prepared for next time and i think right. i think there needs to be that conscious understanding from people uh to at least the very least you know reach out to some one of the things that I want to touch on is, is kind of the flip side of, you know, the disaster preparedness. You know, we we say, you know, we want you to have a kit and a plan and stay informed. Um, and I think what people or at least, you know, I can say from my personal experience, I've found is that if you take these steps, you tend to find more applications for it. So. You know, maybe you're not going to have an incident where your house burns down or gets wrecked by a, a tornado or or whatever, a, a really devastating incident. But, you know, if your car breaks down on the side of the road or, you know, if, if someone calls you and needs help with something minor, you know, if their car broke down, for example, you know, it, by being prepared for some of this stuff, you will find applications for it. You know, if you have... A, a good first aid medical kit in your car you know if someone if you witness a wreck at the side of the road that gives you the ability to apply your resources and hopefully your skills uh to an event that you would otherwise not be at all prepared for so i i definitely think you know by preparing for the larger scale stuff you can find reasons to be prepared for the small scale stuff yeah, I mean, it's 100% right. And I can't tell you how many times I have used my preparedness stuff um, for just kind of everyday stuff. Like like you were talking about that, um, that first aid kit in your vehicle. 
We have used that first aid kit so many times. Like we go camping, we're outdoors a lot, and you know we have kids, and they, you know, whatever. We've mm-hmm. used it. That we've used that thing so many times. It's ridiculous. And mm-hmm. so you know, putting it together, you may not think of all the scenarios that you're going to potentially use it for. But I can't. I, I just can't even tell you how many times I've used our preps, never thinking that I would use it for that particular application. But when it comes up and I'm like, hey, I have that. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. And, and you, you know, that's that's such a good feeling when you're the person who's like, hey, I have that. And <laughs> I'm 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 on the same page with you on that. That's happened so many times to me where someone's like, dang, I really wish I had this thing. And it's like you reach in your Mary Poppins bag and it's like, hey, guess what I have? That's a great feeling. So, you know, oh, totally. you be, being that person who happens to be there to save the day, you know, that that's really nice. It's a, such a good feeling. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you get the, the friends that are like, why do you have that? And I'm like, oh, right. well, yeah. <laughs> let yeah. me tell you. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, well, I just wanted to say thank you so much. Uh, is, uh, is there anywhere that people can contact you or just, you know, if they want to talk um, further or... Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, I'm on uh, I'm on Facebook and Instagram, and uh, it's uh, TJ Menzer, uh, I think is my Instagram tag. I should know this, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, TJ Menzer. You can find me on Facebook or Instagram. Um, I have a couple videos up on YouTube right now, but I haven't really gotten real serious into that yet. So. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I appreciate you, uh, taking the time to have me on and talk to me. I really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, it's something I, I'm very passionate about and I love talking about it. And, and before I go, I have to tell you, you know, you're the reason why there's a Silcock key in my, uh, emergency bag. And I know I'm not the only one <laughs> that's kind of, I, I think what your claim to fame is right now is getting everyone on board with the Silcock keys, which is a great deal. So if you don't have one, go out and get one. So, That's so funny. Uh, I, I, yeah. uh, I've actually been told that a lot lately <laughs> yeah, because I, yeah, I really yeah. hammer that silk hockey and like yeah, everything that yeah. I talk about. I should just say <laughs> it in like every video. It could be totally off topic. I'll be talking about gardening and get the silk hockey. Okay, right. Back yeah, to gardening. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. it's, it's, it's such a great thing to have. And, you know, so many people had not really, I think, heard of that or been exposed to that, uh, you know, before you really started hammering that in. But, you know, that's that's a great claim to fame. So that's yeah, really cool. Awesome. I'm so happy to hear that. Fantastic. All (laughs) right. Well, thank you so much uh, for being on, TJ. Really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, Go find him. There'll be some links down below. I'll I'll at least link your Instagram so people can find you. Okay. And um, yeah, and if anyone else wants to find me or TJ, you can reach out. uh, Just search Rogue Preparedness on the old Google or DuckDuckGo or whatever you search. And I should come up on Instagram and Twitter and YouTube and all that. And I am on uh, Patreon if you uh, like this podcast or YouTube or whatever you just just want to be generous and <laughs> uh, please uh, consider supporting me on their Patreon and thank you all so much for listening conquer tomorrow by preparing today talk to y'all later bye